When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Those lyrics familiar to you, for, for many of you, you've sung that probably multiple times, it is well with my soul. But do you know the backstory to that hymn? It really changes everything. A song originally penned by Horatio Spafford in 1873. He was a wealthy lawyer living in the city of Chicago. He and his wife Anna had five children until their son, Horatio Jr., died suddenly of scarlet fever at the age of four. And just a year later, they lost many of the properties that they owned in the great fire of Chicago of uh, 1871, yet they extended charity and benevolence to people that were in much uh, dire straits than they were. Two years later, they decided to take a holiday in England. Horatio needed to stay back in Chicago uh, a few days for business, so he put his wife Anna and their four remaining children, all daughters, on a steamship steam headed for England. That ship was struck in the middle of the Atlantic by an iron sailing ship, and within 12 minutes, 226 souls perished, including all four of their daughters. Anna was found unconscious, floating on a wood plank. When she finally arrived in South Wales, she telegrammed her husband with these words, saved alone. Well, Horatio immediately changed his plans, got on a, a, a ship himself and headed across the Atlantic to be with his bride. And at the very spot where the previous uh, boat had gone down, the captain of his ship summoned Horatio to the bridge had his charts laid out in front of him and said, I believe this is exactly where that ship went down. It is said that Horatio returned to his cabin and wrote that hymn. That changes everything, doesn't it? That's not just a nice hymn, it is well with my soul, that we sing about ourselves, but it's a hymn that was born out of much suffering and deep grief. Context changes things, and that's a little bit of what's going to happen this morning. We are going to focus our attention on Psalm 105, but before we do, I want to set some context for us. First of all, if you look at Psalm 107, if you have your Bible open or you can scroll over, you'll see that Psalm 107 says that it is the first psalm in book 5. Well, some of you may not have known this, but the psalms, all 150 of them, are, have been collected and arranged in book form. And so we are nearing the end of book four, which has been largely a book of psalms of praise. Last week, Pastor Eric preached on Psalm 104, and the focus there was on the amazing works of God's creation and why we worship him because of what he's done in creation. Today, this week, Psalm 105, the focus is going to be on God's amazing works of providence and care for his people throughout their history. Now, Psalm 105 was probably 
compiled by some priests or at least members of the tribe of Levi, the priestly class, um, after Israel was returning from exile. If you know the story, they had been taken into captivity because of their willful disobedience, had been in captivity under Babylon and then Persia, but now they're returning back. And the Levites took various portions of Scripture and they compiled this song. And they did it because they wanted to make sure that the people of Israel, now returning from years, decades really, in captivity, that they would know how to go about the life of worship because they had forgotten, they had lost it. Most of the people that were returning had been born in captivity, so they really didn't know how things were supposed to go. And that's what Psalm 105 is. But oftentimes, especially on a day like today where we focus our attention on the psalm, we might think, just sitting here, we might think, well, that's, that's a nice psalm, kind of just dropped out of the sky right into the middle of our Bibles, right? Wrong. <laughs> There's a context to this psalm. Not only what I've just shared, but even more significantly, this psalm was sung years before, decades before, when King David first became king over all of Israel. When King David uh, ordered that the Ark of the Covenant be brought back to Jerusalem, that the worship life of his people be reinstated. And if you remember that story, you'll know that he blew it to begin with. It's, it went in fits and starts because they tried it their own way. A couple of men lost their lives, and then they did it correctly. We learn of that um, in First Chronicles chapter 16. Now, I'm going to ask Austin to to put that up there on the screen. I simply want you to have that reference in mind. We're not going to look at those verses this morning, but you may want to jot that down. In fact, I would encourage you to take notes, at least when I preach. Take notes so that you can go back and you can, you can review some of the things that we go over. But 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 22 is a direct verbatim quote, except for two minor differences of the first 15 verses of Psalm 105. In other words, King David wrote those first 15 verses that we're going to look at this morning. King David ordered that the people of Israel should sing this song or this psalm as the ark was being brought back. A couple of things I want to make observations about. First one is in the story of King David doing this in 2 Samuel 6, we note that he gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 strong. Now, he's talking here about military personnel. This is a big deal, right? This psalm that we're about to look at this morning was first sung at a very big occasion. This was a huge deal, bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. We also learn from 1 Chronicles 15 that it was not just a big deal, but it was a festive occasion. In fact, David commanded the appointment of singers and, and those who would play on musical instruments. 1 Chronicles 15, 16 says, singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy, to blow trumpets before the ark of God. A very big deal, a very festive occasion. That's the psalm we're going to look at this morning. One other thing, though, I want you to notice before we get into the psalm, and that is the use of the term Yahweh. Now, your Bible may not say that, 
But your Bible at least is going to say the Lord. Look with me very quick. Just let your eyes scan down Psalm 105. The Lord appears in verse 1, 3, 4, 7, 19, 24, and 25. Seven times the Lord. I want you to notice something, though. That term Lord, that word Lord in your Bible is in all caps. At least it should be. And when you see that in the Old Testament, the Lord with L-O-R-D all in caps, that really is the translator's way of translating a word that's very difficult to pronounce, let alone translate. And that's the word, the name Yahweh. That's the name that God gave himself. You remember the story of Moses in the burning bush? And God gives him a charge to go to Egypt and to deliver his people. And Moses, kind of stuttering, says, well, who should I tell them sent me when they ask? And God himself says, tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. That's the Hebrew term, Yahweh. That's the name that God gives him, self. I think we miss that when that gets translated by the title, the Lord. That's really a title, right? As opposed to the name. And so this morning, I may vacillate back and forth between the Lord and Yahweh, but know that that actually is the personal name that's being used in this psalm that David wrote so many years before. You know, it's interesting, I, just to put this um, so it makes sense, Uh, Debbie, who was sitting here in the first row of the first service, uh, Debbie has been my bride for 50 years. Some would say spouse, some would say wife, I tend to say bride. But I don't call her that at home. I don't say, hey, bride, what's for dinner? Or, hey, bride, let's go out to eat. I don't don't use the title, right? I prefer to call her by her name or some other terms that I can't share with you. Um, Too personal, right? But... um, the point here is that there's, there's an intimacy involved. Seven times the psalmist is using this intimate, God-given name for himself, Yahweh. Well, with that as a backdrop, let me give you what I think is the big idea. We like to uh, preach here with, with a thought in mind, kind of a, a major idea in mind, and here it is. Because God keeps his promises... He repeatedly acts on behalf of his people. And then he invites us to worship him in multiple ways. I'm going to ask that that be left up there on the screen for a little bit because it serves as a wonderful outline or structure uh, to the psalm itself. 45 verses long, yet here's how it breaks out. The first six verses... We're going to set in reserve, and we'll come back to that at the end of the message. Because the first six verses is the invitation that God gives to worship him in multiple ways. Verses 7 through 11, though, is that first phrase in the big idea. Because God keeps his promises. It's the heart of the song, 7 through 11. God keeping his promises. Making and keeping his promises. And then a very long section from verses 12 to 44 we see God repeatedly is acting on behalf of his people because he keeps his promises. And then we'll leave verse 45 till the very end. Look with me then again 
at the, at the text, and let me read now verses 7 through 11. God keeps his promises. He is Yahweh, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Verses 7-11, the heart of the psalm, the heart of the psalm is the covenant promise that God makes to his people, and he repeats it. He makes it first to Abraham, he repeats it to Isaac, his son, and finally to Jacob, his grandson. God keeps his promises. Notice verse 7. Yahweh is Israel's God, but notice his judgments are in all the earth. He is Yahweh, he is the Lord over his chosen people, yet his righteous rule extends over all creation. We say the same thing today. We worship God through Jesus Christ, but Jesus is Lord over all creation. He's not just Lord over my heart, over your heart. He's Lord over all creation. God's judgments are in all the earth. And then notice this resounding theme that's going to come through the, the, the entire psalm. Verse 8, he remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. <laughs> that's way more than just some sort of intellectual recollection. No, this is an active, faithful remembering. It's a keeping of promises that God has made. And the word that he commanded, this speaks to the fact that this is all on God. This is God's initiative. Um, this is not because of who Israel is, not because they're really cool people. No, this is because of God's initiative, divine initiative, the word that he commanded. Well, it begs the question, well, how does he do that? How does he remember? Well, in the next section of verses, 12 to 44, those 32 verses, there are 23 specific action words that speak of how God kept his promises. Rather than have uh, Justin read through the whole section for us, I'm going to have him do it in bits and pieces. But before he does, let me just call this to our attention. This section of verses from 12 to 44, this speaks of God's repeated acts on behalf of his people. These are wonders of God throughout the history of his people, and they are evidence of his character. God's character is he is faithful. He keeps his word. He keeps his promise. Do you ever need to be reminded of that? Boy, I do. I'm sure we, ought, we can all agree with that. Justin, if you would uh, read the, the words will not be on the screen He's going to stand and just read verses 12 through 15. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. The first thing we notice here in God repeatedly acting on behalf of his people is probably the most important thing. He's acting on behalf of his people, not because of who they are, 
but because of who he is. Moses said something very similar many years prior to this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 7 says, And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath oath that he swore to your fathers. Notice verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Can you see the the echo of that in Psalm 105? Wonderful promises. But lest we think that, well, those are just promises, Tim, for for God's people back in that day, back in in the old time, in the Old Testament. There are wonderful parallels throughout the New Testament. And let me just draw a couple First one, in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, the Apostle Paul basically says essentially the same thing. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still wallowing in, in the muck and the mire of our sin, Christ died for us. These promises that we're going to be learning about this morning in Psalm 105 are not historical, stale promises for a people of the past. These are promises. This is God's character. This is the same God that we worship, that we adore, that we praise. Justin, would you read um, verses 16 through 22 for us? When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. There, there was so much in each of these sections. I, would, if, I wish we had three hours. We don't, however, so I'm just going to give some highlights. But the most important thing is to hear the, the word of God being read. In this section that Justin just read, Joseph is the main character. As the psalmist is recounting the acts of God, he begins with the story of Joseph and how God providentially plans for his people. Yes, uh, God summoned a famine, but he had already sent someone, his messenger, ahead of him, namely Joseph, to prepare the way. This shows God's sovereign will, his providential purposes. They're on display for all to see. And Joseph himself understands this. In fact, he reflects on that at the end of his life. In Genesis chapter 50, if you remember the story, he is second in command to to Pharaoh over Egypt. His brothers, who had sold him into slavery, they they are now standing in front of him. They don't fully understand who he is until he reveals himself, right? And then their hearts are struck with fear because they realize, "Uh uh-oh, this is the guy we sold into slavery. What's going to happen to us now? And in Genesis 50, Joseph says this in verses 19 and 20. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you... You meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good 
Do you see that? Joseph even understands God's providential plans for his people that the psalmist has talked about. Justin, please read a very long section, verses 23 through 38. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. Did you hear all those action words? Did you hear all those things God did for his people? They're slaves in Egypt. Yet God keeps his promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by delivering his people. He turned, he sent, he turned, he spoke, he gave, he struck, he spoke. On and on and on, these action words of God acting on behalf of his people because he's keeping a promise. Verse 27, Moses and Aaron um, enter the scene and we see them performing his signs among them. The signs and the miracles that they performed at God's behalf are reinforcing the command and the promises that God has made for his people. Connecting that to us, connecting that to the New Testament, I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, or you could say even when we were enslaved to sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Justin, three more, verses 39 to 42. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. He remembered his holy promise, the promise made to Abraham, his servant. Here we see the, the people of Israel, they've come out of slavery, but they wonder, are, is it any better here than there? Remember, many times the people of Israel wanted to go back to enslavement in Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness, but yet God is still keeping his promises. In spite of the repeated grumbling of his people, the rebellion of his people, the disobedience of his people, God keeps his promise. And why does he do that? Verse 42 again. Because he remembered. 
because he actively remembered his holy promise. Two final verses, Justin, please. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil. Thank you. God delivers his people, finally, into the promised land, and in so doing, he keeps his promises by leading them into a land and into a time and into a space of fruitfulness. And once again, I'm reminded of the connection to the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, right after those great double verses that we love to quote, for by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And notice this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because God remembers the promise that he's made to his people. And in our case, that promise is this new covenant. The new covenant in the shed blood of Jesus. You know, we celebrated that last week with communion. Remembering the, the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. We are his workmanship and because of what he's done for us, we in turn do for him in response to him. God leads us into a life of fruitfulness because he remembers his promises. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the first six verses. The verses that Justin first read before I even started this this, uh, message this morning. And I want us to notice something that you may not have seen before, and I I wanna unpack um, 10 specific words that you may not understand why they're there. In verses one through six, As a result of the fact that God keeps his promises, as a result of the fact that God has repeatedly shown action on our behalf, on his people's behalf throughout history, we are then invited into worshiping him. But he's encouraging us to worship him in multiple ways. Well, that kind of begs the question, right? Why did you even come in here this morning? Why do we come to to worship services here at New Life on a Sunday morning. Or for those of you that maybe could be here, but you're still in your pajamas and your robe and your cup of coffee, and you're sitting on the, on the sofa watching this, I know exactly who you are. <laughs> Why would you even do that? Why would you even tune in? What's the purpose of that? In other words, what do we mean by the term worship? When we talk about coming to a worship service or a worship gathering, what do we mean? Well, I'm, I'm going to venture to say that most of us typically, when we say, man, the worship was so good this morning, can't, can't say so much for that sermon, but the worship was just so good this morning. We're thinking of the singing, right? Which we've been doing and will do more of, fortunately, in just a few minutes. But what I want us to see here, particularly in the first five verses, there are 10 specific commands. In fact, some commentators have dubbed this the 10 commandments of worship. Now, these are imperatives. These are strong Hebrew words, action verbs, to describe what it is we are to do. These are not optional. These are imperatives. Now, lest the word command or imperative is off-putting, let me suggest this word, a more inviting term. These are invitations. 
These are invitations to obedience to do what God has called us to do. And all of them are listed in the plural. In other words, the entire congregation is invited into these ways of worship to testify about God's actions on our behalf and therefore to offer praise and worship to Him. In verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, or give thanks to Yahweh. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. There are three invitations. The first one, give thanks. Literally, that word means to hold out your hand in reverence and worship. Hmm. I mentioned earlier, this is, like a, this is like a proof text for worshiping with extended hands. And now I know that's difficult for some of us. When we stand to sing, we want to put our hands down to our side. And we can't get them off our side, right? But this is the proof text right here, right? Oh, give thanks to Yahweh with outstretched hands in praise to Him. And with that comes, call upon His name. Cry out about His name. Cry out to His name. Literally, address Him by name. Call upon Him, Yahweh. It's an exhortation to worship and praise Yahweh by name. And the third one in verse 1 is to make known His deeds. This is a way of worship. It's based on a, a term that means to have an intimate, experiential knowledge about something, but the word itself gets translated here, you have such a knowledge so that you announce that knowledge to other people. A, a paraphrase that's that's common, many people appreciate the paraphrase, puts it this way, tell everyone you meet about it, right? So in other words, worship is not something that occurs in this space on Sunday mornings, and as soon as we walk out of here, it's life as usual. No, worship includes when we head out of here, we make known, we tell everyone we meet about what we've just heard, what we've just learned. Well, those are the first three. It gets better. In verse 2, there's three more invitations. And the first two get translated in the same way. And so we miss the, the significance of the language here. The, the words are synonymous in the Hebrew, but they speak of different things. The first word we get translated is to sing. To sing to Him. And that literally means to do it with your voice. Use your voice. And we've used our voices this morning to sing to Him. But the second word, which gets also translated sing, sing praises to Him, actually speaks of striking an instrument with the fingers. Chris has been doing that here this morning on the guitar. He's been striking the, the strings of that guitar with his fingers. He's been touching the parts of the musical instrument. Stephen has been hitting the, the drum box up here with, with his hands and, and his palms as, as, as part of this musical instrument. In other words, to play upon the instrument and therefore to sing praises to God. And then thirdly, tell of all His wondrous works. Now that, at first glance, sounds like make known His deeds, but what's behind it is this. It has the idea of to talk with oneself about it first and to do it out loud. Now, we might call that meditating, we might call that musing, but the purpose of that is so that you might end up declaring, tell of all His wondrous works. I just heard of a really cool thing 
that illustrates this. I just heard this last night. Our oldest daughter and husband took their two daughters, our two, two of our grand, uh, granddaughters, to um, eastern Oregon, somewhere northeast of Bend. There's a lake out there. I can't remember the name of it. And they've been there for the last few nights. And you're out far enough for the, from the lights of the city that you can see the stars in ways you've never seen before. And Grace, who's now uh, not, uh, 10, and Elise, who's uh, 6, uh, our daughter said, when they were wa- looking at the sky, which they've like never seen before, words started coming out of their mouths that my daughter's never heard them say before. <laughs> Things like, this is magnificent out of our 10-year-old granddaughter's mouth. She's telling of his wondrous works. She's meditating on what she's seeing in creation and musing about it, and then almost involuntarily declaring in praise out of her mouth. Isn't that wonderful? What a beautiful illustration. Tell of all his wondrous works. Verse 3, glory in his holy name includes one invitation. And the the term to glory in something means to make something crystal clear, to make something shine. In in its usage, it became became a use for to make a show of something, uh, to boast about something, to rave over someone or something, to celebrate. His holy name is worth celebrating. The name Yahweh, the name he gave himself speaks of his character, revealed to his people. He's chosen them. He's made them his own. He's given them promises. That's worth glorying in, that name. It's to boast of and to celebrate what our holy God has done. We sometimes sing that here, right? Look what God has done. And we give praise to God accordingly. Verse 4 includes a couple more invitations. And once again, at first glance, Seek Yahweh and his strength. Seek his presence continuously because the words get translated the same. We miss the significance. The psalmist is using two separate words for seek. The first one has the idea of to follow after someone in pursuit, to pursue after, to search for someone. Now, we know that Yahweh is not lost. He doesn't need to be found, right? But rather, the sense of the term here is that to go to the Lord, to search after and go to the Lord, go to the place where God is to be found and worship Him there. And to the Israelites coming out of captivity, not knowing exactly what they were to do, that was super significant. This psalm was, that, that David had, has first sung and they're now being reminded of is, is we need to go to, to Jerusalem. This is the place where His presence will be and we need to worship Him there. Seek Yahweh. Seek the Lord. Seek His presence to search out, specifically in worship or even in prayer, to strive after, to beseech, to seek His presence. How often do we do that? When are we commanded to do that? Sunday mornings, right? Well, no, that's not what the text says. What does the text say? The text says, continually, perpetually, constantly, to seek his presence. In verse 5, there's the the tenth and final invitation. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. 
his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Do you hear the echo? This psalm is all about God remembering his covenant promises to his people. And therefore, he acts accordingly and keeps those promises. And now we're urged, we're in fact commanded to remember those wondrous works that he's done. To be mindful of that, to recount that. And we do that in song, and we'll continue this morning to do that in song, to commemorate the great works that he has done on our behalf. Those are 10 specific different ways to worship. Wow. I got to take a breath, right? That's amazing. It takes your breath away to realize the, the specific instructions we've been given in this Psalm 105 on how to worship. It's much more than just singing. Don't stop singing, please. Raise your voice loud and sing, but it's much more than that. And it's certainly much more than watching others on a stage perform and think that somehow we've been involved in worship. And I say that in sort of a chastising sort of a way, but we are, we are called to be fully engaged whether we're watching on a television screen or whether we're watching here in person. We are, we are to participate. Think back again to when David first wrote this psalm. You know, he, he got in a little bit of trouble with his wife, Michal, at the time. Why? Because he was dancing before the Lord. And she thought he was uh, disgracing himself. And in reality, he was just full body, singing, praising, jumping, dancing before the Lord. He was exalting in what God had done on behalf of his people. He could not help himself. Now, I'm not suggesting that you fall out in the middle of the, of the, uh, of the aisle this morning, although there are some, places, some churches that would expect you to do that. I don't have that expectation this morning, but I do expect us to, to understand that worship is much more than just singing. Worship is a, is a full engagement, and it goes far beyond the walls of this facility as we go out and we speak of what we've learned to others around us. The psalm ends in verse 45 with uh, the, the purpose behind all of this, this praise. That they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. The purpose of for God bringing his people into the promised land was that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws and be a testimony to his grace and his love to the rest of the world. Notice how the psalm ends. Praise Yahweh. Our purpose, obedience, following in the footsteps of Jesus, our purpose is in fact praiseworthy. Because God keeps his promises and because God repeatedly acts on behalf of his people, God invites us to worship him in so many different ways. Last Sunday, we sang the chorus, Great Are You, Lord. And as we sang that, I realized, oh my word, that, I, need to, I need to repeat the lyrics in the sermon because it speaks to what we're called to do. Listen to the, word, the words of great are you, Lord. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord. 
It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. Let's do that in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We've looked at your word this morning with expectation, and as always, you've delivered truth beyond measure. We've learned of your will, your will for your people, your will for us today. Now we ask that you would change our hearts by the power of your spirit. Would you glorify yourself, Lord Jesus, through us as we continue to worship you today. And we pray this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.